0: There is an 800-year-old metaphor of Greek origin that says it's darkest before the dawn. Though it is technically not a true statement, it does provide us with a vivid allegory. This first appeared in Christian literature as an allegory in 1650 in the work of English preacher Thomas Fuller, who wrote, it is always darkest just before the day dawneth. Now, this happens to be true probably about half the time when the moon is out, when we could see a full moon uh, or even any, any kind of moon after the new moon. For the first half of the month, the moon can be seen after sunset but sinks below the horizon by sunrise, making it darkest before the dawn because the moon is not seen, but In general, during the early hours of the morning, at least 30 minutes before dawn, what we refer to as twilight, the sky actually begins to brighten at that time, signaling the approaching of sunrise. So while not technically true, the idea that it's darkest before the dawn does provide a dramatic metaphor, and it can evoke the uncertainty that comes with darkness. It represents a time of transition. Where old is giving way to new, it can symbolize the struggle between light and darkness, what will prevail, with the dawn coming and the sun coming up, representing the triumph of good over evil. And it is also a striking illustration of the book that we begin studying today. Today we begin a new series in the great historical narrative of Israel, named after the book's first hero but not the primary hero as we're going to see but the first hero Samuel. The book of Samuel is part of what is called Deuteronomistic history or the unified history of Israel that is rooted in the book of Deuteronomy and plays out in the life of God's people. It begins in Deuteronomy through Judges, Samuel and Kings. And the author, according to Jewish tradition, the author of Samuel was Samuel, but he could obviously have not written all of the book of Samuel. He could have written at most up to the first 25 chapters of 1 Samuel, which records his death. Uh, Some say the prophets Nathan and Gad were involved. This is based upon 1 Chronicles 29. Most believe that it was during Israel's exile sometime around the 6th century BC, that an unknown author compiled the writings that included writings of Samuel, perhaps Eli, and others, along with public records of Israel, public records that David had written. And this editor, if you would, redacted some material, forming today what we know as the book of Samuel. Its historical accuracy is linked to the historical documents that existed at the time, including chronicles. Its theological content is eternal. It was relevant, obviously, in the day that it was written. It was relevant to Israel's exilic community in Babylon, and it remains relevant today as Samuel remains one of the most preached books in the Old Testament. Originally compiled as a single book, Why do we have two? Well, uh, around 400 BC, the, uh, Hebrew was translated into Greek, and Greek takes a lot more, uh, length than, about actually about 25% more length than, than Hebrew writing. So, rather than having one big large scroll, they divided the scroll up into two. And it's believed that the narrative just was too long to fit on a single scroll, so it was divided into two, forming 1st and 2nd Samuel. It is one continuous story, but the division of the two books does provide us a a point of change, if you would, in the kingdom, the dawning of of the kingdom of Israel, what I refer to as moving from twilight into sunrise. 1st Samuel is the story basically of three men. Samuel, Saul, and David. And they hold a fascinating place, not only in preaching, but in history and art and literature. And it traces the development of the kingdom of Israel from the dark anarchy of the book of Judges to the establishment of a theocratic monarchy. The narrative covers about a 100 years of history. It begins with the story and birth of the, and childhood of Samuel, in uh, chapters one to three, this is followed by a narrative of, of, of the transfer of the ark and the ark of the covenant and the power back and forth between Philistia and Israel. In chapters four to six, and then after chapter six, it tells the stories of Samuel's interactions with Israel's first king Saul and future king David. While 1 Samuel echoes the darkness of the book of Judges, 2 Samuel reveals us to us more about King David. And King David, as we know, is is Israel's messianic king. So that's why we kind of can look at it as twilight moving into dawn, twilight to, to sunrise. So I'm entitling this series, Twilight Kingdom. This is 1 Samuel, Twilight Kingdom, a reference to the time of darkness before the dawn. God willing... The series in Second Samuel, which probably won't be till 2025, will be entitled "If I Live, Shadow Kingdom," alluding to the sun having risen on the kingdom, forming the shadows that point to the fulfillment of Christ, David's greater son, and our great King. Now, First Samuel can be divided into three sections: Samuel in chapters one through seven. Saul in chapters 8 through 15, and David in chapters 16 to 31. The book narrates how the lives of these three men intersect with one another. And I'm going to just summarize these sections, beginning first with Samuel in chapters 1 through 7. Samuel was a prophet, and he was the last of the judges. In the book of Judges, which is the darkest time in the Bible, the indictment against the nation of Israel was that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It is a very disturbing book, particularly at the end. And it you see this, it details this downward spiral into utter corruption of the nation of Israel. After the death of Joshua, when they come into the promised land, is a time of great downward corruption. The... Proverbial full moon in that darkness is the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth occurs near the end of the book of Judges. And Samuel begins at that time as well. The birth of Samuel, which is described in the first three chapters, is believed to have taken place during the 20 years where Samson was the judge of Israel. Samson was the last judge of Israel. Sam's, well, Samson was the last judge of the book of Judges, the 12th of 14 judges, the last two being revealed in 1 Samuel as Eli and then finally Samuel. The book opens describing the family of Elkanah. Elkanah had two wives, Peninnah and Hannah. Hannah was barren. She takes center stage in the first two chapters and we're gonna look at this uh, next time. The first, actually chapter one through chapter two, verse 11, we'll cover in one sermon. And we'll see the full range of emotion of this woman of God from her weeping for what she does not have and her asking God, going into worship, trusting God for his answer. In this text, we learn that Samuel is the child that is given to Hannah by God as an answer to her prayer. On four occasions, it refers to Hannah asking or requesting. The Hebrew is Sha'al, is to request. If you look at verse 20 of chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 20, it says, And in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked, Sha'al, I have asked for him from the Lord. Eli also refers to her son as the one you asked for. The word Sha'al resonates throughout the book of 1 Samuel, because it anticipates the one who Israel would ask for, the king who Israel would ask for. And as God answers Hannah, he later uses Hannah's son Samuel to anoint a man by the name of Shaul, or we know him as Saul, whose name means asked for. Hannah named her son Samuel. Samuel's Shimuel meaning God heard because God heard her prayer. And we could take this for granted. Well, of course, God heard her prayer. But remember, this is a period of darkness in Israel. Hannah had no throne of grace promised to her that she could go boldly to and make her request. This was a time of Israel's history where where communication with God was uncommon both ways. The people were not inquiring of God, and God was not speaking. Yet God heard the weeping woman's prayer prayer from Shiloh, and he answered, as James 5 says. The effectual, fervent prayer of the righteous has great power in its working. After weaning Samuel, Hannah, Hannah dedicated him for the work of the ministry under the tutelage of Eli the priest, where we, he would learn priestly duties. From a child, Samuel heard the voice of God, which again was rare. Look at chapter 3, verse 1, for Samuel 3, verse 1. Now the boy, Samuel, was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. God was silent. The silence of God or the absence of visions is not some subjective feeling. He's, this, is object, this is the objective state of affairs in Israel. God was not speaking at this time. And they didn't care because they weren't listening. This was a day of political anarchy. Everyone is doing right what in their own eyes, right? The two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, are described as wicked men who had no regard for the Lord in 2 Samuel, I'm sorry, 1 Samuel 2.12. People were not listening to God. He was silent. Visions were rare. There are places in the Bible Where we see this, where God seems remote. We saw it last time in Psalm 44, where it even seemed like God was asleep. And during the darkest times in Israel's history was when God was silent. And it's a chilling thought to think about that God is turning them over. He's turning over humanity for their desire for autonomy. He's leaving them alone. He stopped speaking as a consequence of them not listening. Imagine the indictment that God would make. Since you're so disinterested in not listening to me, I will withdraw and no longer speak. From now on, the only voices you will hear will be your own. And that was the story of those times. But the boy Samuel proved to be the exception to the story. In contrast to the silence that had fallen upon the land, God spoke to Samuel, as a boy, three times. Samuel responded those famous words in verse 10. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. They, Israel didn't listen, but there was a boy, chosen by God, who listened. So much of the book of Samuel has this play on words, Shimuel, God listens. It involves speaking and listening. Samuel, in contrast to the priest, Eli, heard from God and thus ended the night of divine silence in Israel. The nation had a prophet, their first prophet. Well, the first prophet in a very long time. Certainly Moses was a prophet. But their first prophet as in the dawning of the kingdom. The nation recognized him as a prophet. Look at 1 Samuel 3, verses 19 and 20. 1 Samuel three nineteen 19 and 20. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. After Eli's death, the responsibility of judging Israel now fell upon Samuel. And Samuel would be the one that would eventually ki- uh, crown King Saul, the first king of Israel. Samuel could have legitimately served as a priest as well. He learned about the priesthood from Eli, and according to 1 Chronicles 6, he was a Levite by birth. So Samuel was a prophet, a priest in a way, and a judge, or what were the monarch of the time, together in one person. And as such, he points to Christ in his threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. Indeed, Samuel is one of the great heroes of Israel in Judaism. He's considered second to Moses by many. Uh, Even God himself esteems Samuel just as Moses. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 15, when Jeremiah is interceding for Israel, God says, even if Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, my heart would not go out to this people. Send them away from my presence. Let them go. So God puts Samuel on par with Moses. And we know Moses was a great intercessor. Remember how he interceded for Israel. Here now God's word sets Samuel as his equal. Samuel stands in stark contrast to the lethargic leadership of Eli. Eli was both judge and priest. And I use the word lethargic to describe Eli because he's actually venerated in Judaism. He's considered a godly man in Judaism. But the Bible is kind of ambivalent, doesn't say whether he's good or bad. It says some nice things about him, and he blessed Hannah and um, but he's kind of like a placeholder, like a lot of the judges were. Uh, they kind of just hold a place. He was a weak parent, he was a weak judge, perhaps. It was during Eli's judgeship that the Philistines occupied much of the land that had been promised to Israel, and chapters 4 to 7 then relay the story of Israel's wars with their prime nemesis, the Philistines, and the transfer of the Ark of the Covenant during Eli's leadership. And I believe we're going to cover those chapters 4 to 7 in one sermon. Notably, in that chapter, Eli isn't even mentioned though he's the judge of Israel he's not even mentioned how different he was than Gideon you know or even Samson for that matter Eli does, he's not in the battle until the end when he dies in this double defeat the ark is lost and Eli and his sons Hophni and Phinehas all die Eli falls backward because of his grief and he breaks his neck and scripture says that he broke his neck because of his weight that word kavod his weight on the on the same day, Phineas's wife, this is um, this would be Eli's daughter in law, gives birth to a son, who she names Ichabod, Ichavod, meaning the glory or the weight has departed, which is very ironic. The weight has departed from Israel. It's an ironic name because the death of Eli. Pave the way for the end of the false gods of Israel, the end of the Ashtaroth. Samuel took charge. It was actually the, the beginning of the dawn of the kingdom when he commanded, Samuel commanded the people to put away the false gods if they were going to finally gain victory over the Philistines. These chapters, almost comical when you read them, ultimately address, address the issue of who is God? Who is more powerful? Is it Yahweh or is it Dagon? The God of Israel or the God of the Philistines? Then following this, chapters 8 to 25, we see Samuel's interactions first with Saul and then with David. Saul takes center stage in chapters 8 through 15. He becomes Israel's first king after a failed appointment of Samuel's two sons. God willing... We'll cover this section in 8 to 15 in four or five sermons. But the stage is set for in chapter eight. If you look at chapter eight, let's look at verses one through nine to set the stage for this section. 1 Samuel 8, verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The names of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey, there's that word Shema, listen, listen to the the voice of the people, in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Verse 8, according to all the deeds that they have done, from the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. You shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of a king who shall reign over them. Samuel warned them. But they said, despite the warning, we want a king. And the king that was chosen for them was Shaul, Saul. The one who they asked for. He becomes the people's choice. He's publicly anointed as king around 1050 B.C. And I don't think there's any coincidence with names in the Bible. I think names often point to to things in the Bible of importance. And we think of Saul as a bad name, right? We think of it that way, Shaul. But Shaul is a good name. It's actually, to this day, a common name, a respected Hebrew name, Shaul. It was tarnished, perhaps, by this first one who bore His name, King Saul. But I also think there's no coincidence that God, in a sense, redeemed the name in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, by choosing an apostle by the name of Shaul, whose Greek name is Paul, as an apostle in the New Testament. By the way, one of my great peeves, the idea that I've heard preached from pulpits, Saul, bad, Paul, good. No, Saul, Shaul was his Hebrew name Paul was his his Greek name so same person just referred to differently throughout the book of Acts. King Saul ha- does have his ups and downs. look at verse uh, chapter 14 turn to chapter 14 verse 46. See the exploits of Saul chapter 14. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all the enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malchishua, And the names of his two daughters were These, the names of the firstborn, were Mirab. the the name of the younger Michal. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of um, Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man and any valiant man, he attached himself to, he attached him to himself. Saul led Israel to decisive victories in battle, but he had many personal failures. We're going to see as we study chapters 8 through 15, this back and forth with Saul. Is Saul good? Is Saul bad? There are chapters that are pro-Saul. There are chapters that are anti-Saul. You see some texts that paint Saul as a great victor. Other times as a villain. And other times it seems like he's almost a victim. Unregenerate scholars had suggested that the book of Samuel is actually presenting two opposing versions of Saul's life. That's how different it seems. But I think it's just simply trying to see something clearly at twilight, in low light. The light, you know, if you ever try to see things at night with low light, your mind plays tricks on you. In, in the same way, First Samuel is presenting Saul as this political leader. He's chosen by God. He has this critical role in the history of Israel and bringing Israel, the, the kingdom to Israel. Yet he struggles. He struggles in, his, in this role of king. He struggles in his relationship with God. And ultimately, as the sun comes up, we see pride. We see rebellion. We see Saul's character clearly revealed by the end of the book. We see him as duplicitous. He's contrasted to his very own son, Jonathan, who's who's honest. We see him compared to David, his successor. And as the narrative of 1 Samuel moves along, as the sun rises over the kingdom, Saul decreases and David increases. Finally, look at chapter 15, verse 22. Saul's disobedience results in him being rejected as king. 1 Samuel 15, verse 22. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination... And presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Sad moment. Just like Eli's death. Sad moment. But also just like Eli's death resulted in Samuel judging the people. Saul's rejection brought hope to Israel. In the second, and greatest king of the nation. Second Samuel, or First Samuel, chapter sixteen through thirty-one, bring David to the forefront. God's anointed, the man after God's own heart. David was born ten years before Saul became the king. He was a boy when Samuel prophesied the rejection of Saul. And as the sun rises on the kingdom, Samuel makes a visit to a home of a man in Bethlehem by the name of Jesse. And he finds David, the youngest son, to be God's choice for Israel's king. And he anoints David with oil, but his kingship has to wait. It's not going to come immediately upon the anointing. Although Samuel is rejected and David is anointed, it's going to take years before David becomes the king. For 15 years, David proved himself as a great warrior, a hero. Remember, he's the one who slayed the great Philistine champion Goliath while Saul cowered. It actually, that, that act was what threw Saul into a fit of jealousy where he schemed to destroy David, twice attempting to take, take David's life. And even while David had ample opportunity to take Saul's life, he never harmed Saul. He considered Saul the Lord's anointed, and he was he was allowed God to handle him. But, like Saul, David's personal life was checkered with failure. And you may not know all the history, but just the mention of some names. Michal, Bathsheba, Amnon, Abijah, Absalom. All you need to know is a little bit about those names to know of David's failure as a husband and a father. Fatricide of his sons. Absalom killing Amnon for raping his sister Tamar. David marries a childless Michal, has who knows how many concubines, yet he still commits adultery with Bathsheba. Talk about a dysfunctional family. Violence. Political intrigue litter David's record as king. Think, Uriah the Hittite, the husband of Bathsheba. But alas, David is called a man after God's own heart. As I'm reading First Samuel, the question that keeps coming back to me is why? It seems the sins of David surpass even those of Saul, at least on a human level. I started to think, is it too much of a stretch to say, David have I loved, Saul have I hated? I just offer that as a suggestion. Maybe we could study it more as we get into their life together. But I wonder, does the story of Saul and David extend the meta narrative of the two seeds that began in the garden, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent that was then manifested in Cain and Abel, and later in... Isaac and Ishmael, and later in Jacob and Esau. Could we, say, could we add Saul and David to that? I don't know. One commentator, I don't know if he's a believing commentator or not, he was quoted in another commentary, said this, Saul experiences the dark side of God, whereas David only experiences the other side. And maybe we can look into this a little bit more when we get into the story of David and Saul. Saul. First Samuel concludes the twilight kingdom season with the Philistines pursuing King Saul and his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua, and they all die in battle. And then in an act that I see as a similar act to Samson, Saul, rather than being humiliated by the Philistines, falls on his own sword. It's a dark time. I hope you could see why I see First Samuel as a continuation of the darkness of the book of Judges. Yet, while it takes place in a dark time, First Samuel is not without its traces of light. The book is not merely a political history. It's spiritual in that it concerns the sovereign work of God among his people, at times faithful people and at times unfaithful people. It reveals God's divine purpose in history, as he ordains the affairs of men, as he overthrows their plans, as he establishes his purpose. Though in darkness God's people are not left alone, ultimately, though God is not speaking directly, he's not leaving them alone to some impersonal dark force. The Lord, Yahweh, is King of kings, and his hope shines forth even in the darkest times. We will detect the glimmering light of sunrise on the horizon as we go through 1 Samuel. Let me give you one example. Go back to 1 Samuel 2. This is right after the judgment of God on Eli and his sons. When the glory was supposedly leaving, or at least that she named her son that. But it uncovers this wonderful promise, 1 Samuel 2. Verse 34. Verse 34 and 35. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be assigned to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house. And he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. That's a glimmer of light at a dark time. Samuel himself was a glimmer of light, one of the greatest Old Testament heroes, certainly a type of Christ, born in the darkest of times, born when God was silent, born when the the people were walking in darkness. Though he lived in a dark time when the word of the Lord was rare and there were no prophets in that day, Samuel became the first of a school of prophets. Prophets. As a prophet, he received remarkable revelations. It says of him in 1 Samuel 9, 6, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. Samuel was a prophet like unto Moses. He preached repentance in Israel. He prepared the way for the coming King David, much like Israel's final prophet, John the Baptist, prepared the way for Israel's final king, Messiah. When Samuel was a young boy, it says of him in 2 Samuel, I'm sorry, again, 1 Samuel 2, verse 26. 1 Samuel 2, 26. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow, both in stature and favor with the Lord, and also with man. Does that ring a little bell? Luke 2, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. There are many things we're going to learn as we go through 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel is going to teach us about fervent prayer and God's answer to prayer, how to wait on God. We're going to see responsibility of fatherhood. We're going to see an example of a good biblical friendship. We're going to learn about religious superstitions We're going to learn about authority, how obedience is better than sacrifice. We're going to learn how sovereign, how God sovereignly overrules in His providence. We're going to find God opposing the proud and giving grace to the humble. So many lessons. His irrevocable gifts, His justice, His forgiveness, what human repentance looks like. We're going to see the importance of the heart as David Though failing miserably on several occasions is a man after God's heart. As Samuel reports from the darkness of the dawn of a kingdom, of the coming of a king, we're going to consider our application for our present age as we go through the book. There are many things we can learn from Samuel. First Samuel will end with the coming of a king. In the same way, it points eschatologically to the coming of the Son of God. We're going to learn how Israel's history follows the history of redemption. This Deuteronomic history, which begins in Deuteronomy. We're going to see them fulfilled in Samuel. These things that happen in Samuel harken all the way back to the book of the Torah, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 17 anticipates the day when Israel would have a king. Samuel realizes that day. Deuteronomy speaks of the day when Israel will be at rest from her surrounding enemies, when God would choose one from Israel to worship. Samuel sets the stage for the coming of David, reigning in Jerusalem, where a temple would be built by his son. Deuteronomy presents the blessings and the cursings associated with obedience and rebellion. Samuel presents God responding to the choices of his people with blessing for obedience, cursing for rebellion. Deuteronomy 6 issues the central command, love the Lord your God with your whole heart. Samuel presents us with the man David, a man after God's heart. We'll learn a lot, we'll see a lot, yet brethren, if we stop At the end of Samuel or Kings or any point in Deuteronomic history, we will be left wanting. Our search cannot end with David. There's a reason the scripture highlights the errors, the sins of David, because he is not the end. By the end of the book, by the end of 2 Samuel, we see David, the shepherd boy, the one who slayed bears and lions and giants. We see him now. As he has the opportunity to shepherd people, choosing his own life, he decides at the end of 2 Samuel to put his people, that his people should die so that he would preserve his own life. This cries for one greater than David. David could not be the good shepherd. We must read on past Deuteronomic history to find the answer. Who is that answer? Well, as the sun rises in 1 Samuel chapter 16, eight times between chapter 16 and the end of the book is this mention of the Lord's Anointed. Eight times and four times in 2 Samuel, a dozen times, the Lord's Anointed. In Hebrew, the Lord's Mashiach, or Messiah, in Greek, The Lord's Christ is mentioned just as the sun comes up as twilight gives rise to shadows right around chapter 16. As the sun traverses the sky with the brightness of day, the scripture becomes clearer and the Messiah, the anointed one becomes the hope of the prophets and the hope of Israel. That God would raise up a righteous king. A son of David would arise at the appointed time. That he would be the heir of the promises of David. That he would be divine as Psalm 45 describes him as, as God. Which, by the way, is the next Psalm that we're going, we're going to look at. I'll, I'm going to do a special on, on God willing on Christmas Eve day, which is the Lord's day on Sunday morning. On Psalm 45, the royal psalm, which speaks of the king who is coming, whose throne is forever and ever, whose scepter of his kingdom is a scepter of righteousness, who loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Are we to think that this is David? You won't come to that conclusion just reading Samuel, that's for sure. Samuel will leave you looking in the shadows for a greater David. A sinless David who defeats the greatest enemy of our souls. Our studies in First Samuel will have failed if, it, unless it leaves you longing. As Hannah longed, ultimately for someone beyond her own son, in her Magnificat, she says, The Lord will judge to the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And how that echoes the Magnificat of Mary, as she is about to give birth to Israel's King, Messiah. We'll learn a lot of history in 1 Samuel. We'll be challenged to obey God in 1 Samuel. But most of all, brothers and sisters, we will see the silhouette of Jesus Christ against the backdrop of a rising sun. To understand only Samuel as only historical is to miss the purpose of God in Scripture. All that points to Christ. In conclusion, on the first page of Ernest Hemingway's classic novel, The Sun Also Rises, he quotes from Ecclesiastes 1.5. Ecclesiastes 1.5 says this, The sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises again. This paints the picture for us of sunlight rushing through the darkness, chasing away the darkness. This is how God worked in history. This is how he will work in your life. While the kingdom of Israel was steeped in deep, the deep darkness of slavery in Exodus, the favor of God would shine upon the nation. He would bring them a deliverer, and he would deliver his people through the miracle of parting the Red Sea. Maybe there's something in your life that you feel like is is a Red Sea that's before you, that will never change. In the midst of our trials, in the midst of our darkness, we may wish that the sun would not go down, that there would be no night, but alas, in this world, we have night. But at night, remember Ecclesiastes 1-5, the sun is hastening to rise again. Brethren, we can rely on the sun rising, can we not every day? The sun will come up. You don't need to be anxious during the night. Is the sun gonna come up tomorrow? You don't need to be anxious about it. And likewise, in your situations, do not get anxious that the sun might not rise upon your darkest trial. At night, when it's pitch black and you feel alone and you feel afraid and you feel like nothing is working, do not lose hope as you wait for the sun to rise. Take heart, the sun also rises. Though it doesn't feel like it in those long night hours, the sun is hastening to take the place where it was. Though you may not feel like it in the night watch, as you're standing guard in the darkness, the sun is coming. Christ is rushing to your aid, even though you can't see him in the twilight. Christ is rushing to the aid of the church, brethren. When we look at the darkness of our age and we see the suppression of God's people all over the world, maybe not so much in this country yet, but all over the world, Hold fast to the promise of Jesus Christ in Revelation 22. He said, Behold, I come quickly. Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me. He which testifies of these things says, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Let us keep an eye to the eastern sky where the sun rises, brethren, for the time of his coming is at hand. For as lightning shines out of the east and shines even to the west, so also shall the coming of the Son of Man be. And on that day, when Revelation 21, the dwelling place of God is with man, we will dwell with Him and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away and the night will be no more. For we need no light or, or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. Amen.